Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? So, yeah. So when we were singing just that, you know, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord, it just felt just... It just felt like the world was just set apart and that we were just in a nice special place with the Lord intimately. And it just feels like, I think, something unique, something special, something just intimate that is shared in this moment in time, right? Because this is special, right? This is holy moment, right? This is Shabbat, right? This is the, the time where he meets his people, where we just get to rely on him and that he gets to renew our spirits and everything. It's just a holy moment, and I just think that song was very extremely appropriate, and I just want to just, you know, just, again, bless the Lord, you know, for just creating a special moment in time. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? I thought I saw a hand go up. <laughs> I was, uh, hmm. okay, so this came to my mind during worship, during this uh, part we were talking about uh, being set on a hill and not be, being hidden, you know, having our light shine forth and God filling us up. And a dream I had last night came to mind. And, uh, Hmm. So, yeah, I guess I guess I'll share that. Um, so, in the dream, um, there were two individuals who were speaking with me, and they were well. Okay, so it wasn't clear at first, but it became clear that they were some form of sorceresses, and. Um, so we were talking and saying something about the kingdom and, and one of the women was saying something about the kingdom. And I began to think, you're not talking about the kingdom that I talk about. And so I said, so what kingdom are you talking about? And uh, she didn't say. I said, are you talking about the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom, kingdom of God? And then it became clear that she was not. And uh, on her and her... Uh, friends or the accompanying person um, on their face I saw like stars markings and all kinds of things and anyway and then she began to say more about uh, what they were all about and uh, she made some references to some movie some movies and anyway it was it was deep dark stuff and um, and so then it was like they were right in my face, okay? And, and so then I just began to tell them that God loves them, began to minister to them the, the love of the Lord. And, you know, I wanted to kind of back up a little bit, but I just started to share just, I mean, nothing 
deep or profound or anything, but it's just a simple aspect of, of God's love. And one of the, one of the ladies there, I, and I saw, saw things kind of moving, and one of the ladies, her lips kind of did something weird, and she said, you did it. You did it. And the other person was like, no, he didn't. And I'm sitting there thinking, what did I do? <laughs> and then she kind of disappeared. And the other one was still, still there. And then I saw a, a little bit later, the one who had said that was outside of the building. I saw her through a window and her face was clear and her eyes were bright. And I saw the whites of her eyes, you know? And, and what occurred to me in that was the aspect of the light that we have, the love that the Lord's given us, we share. It's not up to us whether they receive it, right? But that light that comes forth from us, that love, that restoration that we speak with our mouths has the potential to change anyone, no matter what situation that they're in, right? And then it's just up to God to, to do it, right? Now, she said, you did it. You did it. And it's like, well, all I did was share what I've been given, so God working through me did it to bring transformation. And so that's the simplicity and the beauty of, of letting our light shine and saying, well, God, you filled me up. Now I'm not going to be hidden. I'm going to share that and see transformation. Amen. All right. This week, I feel like what, our, what the overall message is, today is, who is my brother? Or who are my brothers? One of the two. And ultimately, I think what the answer is, is it's one you treat with compassion and loyalty. I'm sure there's more to that, but that's what's coming to mind this morning. <laughs> and I think we see that uh, being played out in, in this week's portion. Last week, we began the story of Joseph's life, and we spoke about how both Joseph and Judah were going through a process of becoming who God wanted them to be and their purposes um, and their roles to play in the kingdom. And we talked about how Judah had gone down in esteem in his brother's eyes for his role in saying to sell Joseph. But then we come to the story of, of Tamar and there's... Uh, well, there, there, he comes into a crisis moment where he's faced with having to acknowledge what he's done, even though it would uh, be something that was shameful to admit publicly. But he was willing to set aside that shame and to walk in integrity and say, no, I'm recognizing what has happened. She is right and more righteous than I am, right? And so that was a turning point in his life as he was getting ready to go into the next stages that he would walk in with helping to bring reconciliation to his brothers. And so as we go through this, this portion too, and really through the rest of the story, you have two, two key stories going on, the story of Joseph's life and the story of Judah's life. And each of them have an important role to play in the restoration between the brothers. And I find it so fascinating because you have the line of Judah, right? And the line of Joseph. 
And so you have, you have two messiahs, right, that are spoken of. Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. Messiah ben Joseph would be the one who would suffer for the nation, and Messiah ben David would be the one who would uh, rule and reign. And so from Judah comes the line of David, and, and then you have Joseph, right? So you have, you have really a story of the two lines of Messiah playing out in this, in this storyline. We often focus on Joseph. We're bringing Judah a little bit more into this and uh, trying to tell the story from both sides as we're walking through this year. But we'll start out today talking a little bit about Joseph and how, he, how his life and what was happening with him in Egypt parallels the life of Yeshua. And then we'll work into uh, more of how this unfolds with the brothers. Okay. Um, when we left off last week, Joseph had asked the cupbearer to remember him as he goes before Pharaoh. And so the cupbearer forgets. And our portion opens up saying it happened at the end of two years that Pharaoh had a dream. Okay. And so this is two years after the cupbearer had come out of the prison. Now Pharaoh has a dream and the cupbearer is going to remember Joseph because no one can interpret Pharaoh's dream. So let's read in Genesis 41.9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that you can hear a dream, and you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Okay, so Joseph has been brought out of the pit. He's been rushed up to see Pharaoh. Interestingly, too, just if you note here, I think last, last week we may have talked about this, about how Joseph was taken by his brothers and cast into a pit. And then he was accused by Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, and he was thrown into prison. But the being thrown into prison, being stripped of his cloak and thrown into the prison, was a repeat of what had happened with his brothers. And right here, even the scripture says he was brought out of the pit. Right there, it uses the same word that was used for the pit that he was thrown in by his brothers. So the scripture is saying this was the same thing happening over again to Joseph. Now, he, now actually, him being brought out of the pit is a reversal of what took place. He was thrown into the pit, and now he's been called forth out of the pit to come and be ruler. Okay, that's the death and the resurrection. He's thrown into the pit, and now he's called up out of the pit, right? And so he was released, according to tradition, he was released from prison on Rosh Hashanah, which was Pharaoh's birthday, okay? And that's an interesting aspect because when we look at God's appointed times and we look at Rosh Hashanah, that's Yom Teruah, 
Okay, that's the day of trumpets. That's the day of the coronation of the king. Okay, and so we, we look, we expect that Yeshua will be crowned as king on Rosh Hashanah, Yom, Kippur, Yom uh, Teruah, one day in the future, right? And so he'll be called up from what could be seen as a pit out of exile and crowned as king. So here Joseph's being brought up on that very day. And the tradition also says that there is an appointed end to the number of days that Joseph would be imprisoned. In Genesis Rabbah, God determined a set amount of time for the world to spend in darkness, according to Job 28.3, where it says he sets an end to darkness. And so, yeah, the, the, the time in exile has a fixed amount of time. When it's over, the exile will be done. And, and tying in with that, there's the expectation even that there is a, there's a fixed time when Messiah would come. Right, so if we're looking for the end of the exile, we're looking for the Messiah to come and those will align. There's a fixed time for it, but then also there's a bit of a challenge with the idea of a fixed time for it. In Sanhedrin 98, Rabbi Alexandri says, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi raises a contradiction in a verse addressing God's commitment to redeem the Jewish people. In the verse, which in Isaiah 60:22 it says, I, the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. It's written in its time, indicating that there is a designated time for the redemption. But it is also written, I will hasten it. Okay, indicating that there is no set time for the redemption. So they, the explanation for how you can not have a set time and have a set time is that if they merit redemption through repentance and good deeds, I will hasten the coming of the Messiah. If they do not merit redemption, the coming of the Messiah will be in its designated time. Now, it's kind of looking like we're uh, not hastening it. <laughs> I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Yeshua uh, rose. And, well, actually, I, and I, I think that the, uh, the time, well, the, I think the time is coming soon. The question is, are we hastening it, right? So we are called to hasten the day. But if repentance, repentance and good deeds do not, cause it, Yeshua will still return and reign as king, and it will be in God's appointed time, right? But in both cases, it's at God's direction and decision. But um, What's our official stance on the exact year? On the exact year? Um, hang on, was it? <laughs> yeah, we don't have an official... Actually, we don't even have a guess, but let's say soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Now, the, in Genesis 41, 14, right, we said, it's, the scripture said, they rushed him from the dun dungeon. And Sforno says that every divine salvation comes hastily and unexpectedly. Similarly, the coming of the Messiah will be sudden and hasty, right? Okay, so, so we look for Yeshua's coming. We have Joseph being suddenly called up out of the pit, and now he's coming before Pharaoh. And he is God gives him the interpretation of the dreams such that he can tell Pharaoh that there, is a, there are seven years of plenty that are coming followed by seven years of famine that will swallow up the seven years of plenty. And so from that, Joseph's able to give him the, the interpretation and then also within the interpretation of the dream to say that he needs to set up storehouses to store up the abundance of the, uh, 
of the harvests that are coming in, the, in these seven years of plenty. Now, okay, so he, he gives him that advice. And the, the sages say that the advice that he gave, that Joseph gave to Pharaoh, was not unsolicited advice, that instead it was a natural part of the interpretation of the dream because the cows ate, the seven gaunt cows ate the seven healthy cows. And then the shriveled, withered corn swallowed up the healthy corn. Okay, so in both cases, it consumed that which came from the first seven years. And for it to do that, the first seven years had to have leftovers. And so if the first seven years are going to have leftovers, how are you going to create the leftovers? You're going to create storehouses and you're going to take and you're going to store up so that during those seven years of famine, there will be something that is able to be consumed. So the advice that Joseph gave was even from the dream itself. So then Pharaoh, his response in uh, Genesis 41, 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, well, it's, it, the scripture right before this says, the matter appeared good in Pharaoh's eyes and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Avrech. Here it says, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So within this passage, we see that Pharaoh recognizes the Spirit of God upon Joseph and the wisdom that God has given him. And he sets him over all of Egypt, making him second in charge over everything. Only in the throne is Pharaoh greater than Joseph. And so he gives him a signet ring, he gives him authority, and says that everyone will obey him as though they're obeying Pharaoh. Right? So when he speaks, he speaks on behalf of Pharaoh. And when we look at this, this situation of what's happening to Joseph now, he's ruling over all of Egypt. And we see this as an incredible parallel of the life of Yeshua, right? When he says, could we find another like him, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Okay, if we read in John 3, 34 to 35, the scripture says, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So just as Pharaoh recognized that the Spirit of God was on Joseph, God also God placed his Spirit in Yeshua, right, without measure, that he might speak the words of God. 
And then he says, you shall be in charge of my palace and at your command shall all my people be sustained. Only in the throne shall I outrank you. Well, that is the picture of the father appointing the son and placing him as king over all the earth, right? And, for, and but then, in first, and, and then even with the aspect where he says, only in the throne shall I outrank you is the same picture of the father being over the son as is stated in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So he's saying God, who has all the authority, has put everything in subjection under Yeshua. But yet Yeshua is still subject to God such that when all things are subjected to him, to Yeshua, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So you have the same picture of the father and the son here with Pharaoh and Joseph. And when, when he gave him his ring and authority, dressed him in royal garments, crowned him as the viceroy over all of Egypt, and he gave the public proclamation at the age of 30 to Joseph. Well, that is just like the authority that God gave to Yeshua and how he publicly proclaimed that Yeshua was his begotten son in Luke 3. Verse 21 to 23. Now when all the people were, were baptized, and when Yeshua also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Yeshua, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, the son of Haley. <clears throat> so the parallel and the overlay between this picture of Joseph and Yeshua is really remarkable. And then you have Joseph reigning over Egypt. So here is one, a, a child of Israel who is crowned as ruler over all of Egypt, which is just like Yeshua who's crowned over all the earth. But yet he often is seen as something that is foreign or apart from the children of Israel, right? So he's recognized in more Greek garments today than he is in Jewish garments. And that makes him hard to identify, right? Because, well, it's just as we're going to see here in just a few moments. Yeshua is hard to recognize because for 2,000, well, not, not a full 2,000 years, but for almost, he's been presented as one who is outside of the Jewish people, in that he is often taught to have started a new religion, to have done away with the Torah, to have found a new people to be his own, being the church. And so we end up with replacement theology. We have a different um, presentation of him than as the Jewish Messiah. But God is changing that in these days, and he is opening many people's eyes to see Jew Yeshua in his Jewish context and to know that he was faithful to the covenant, faithful in presenting the Torah and calling people to repentance and into covenant faithfulness towards God. And Christians are seeing it. Jews are seeing it. God is bringing a great revelation of this, but it's taking a move of the Spirit to do it, right? For one thing, um, we are set, like the way that the human brain works, it's it's not. It's set up to interpret things according to like a known set of values, if that makes sense. 
um, and, I, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I, in just a moment we're going to read about the brothers coming to see Joseph and not recognizing him. Right? He's their brother. They knew him when he was 17, so he wouldn't look, I mean, he would look different now that he's 37, 30, actually 39. No, it's uh, not 39 at this point. Perhaps 38. But anyway, right around there, okay? So he was, he was grown to the point where they could have recognized him, but how would you recognize your brother when you expect him to not be the ruler of Egypt, right? You think ruler of Egypt? That's one thing. My brother, that's another thing. How could the two be the same? Okay? And yeah, it's very easy that they would mistake his identity even though they desired to see him. And there was, uh, there's a study that was done a number of years ago. I don't know the name of the study or all the exact details, but what they did is they, they got a group of people together and they had, a, they had uh, cards, like a deck of cards, and they would show them the card and give them five to seven seconds for them to assess what the card is and say what it is. So show the five of diamonds, seven of hearts, all these things. So they would go through and do that. And at some point during the, uh, during the test, they, they held up a card that had a number three on it, and it had, two, it had the three hearts, but it had the middle one missing. So it was, if you looked at it one way, you'd see a two of hearts. If you looked at the number and kind of the organization of the top and the bottom one, you'd see a three of hearts. And they were giving them five to seven seconds to study the card and give an answer, right? About 50% of the people said it was a three of hearts. The other 50% said it was a two of hearts. No one said it was not a real card. Even though they were given time to examine it. Five to seven seconds, right? The reason why is it was outside the realm of what they thought existed in a deck of cards. And so their brain filled in what the difference was. Okay? So I'd, I heard that uh, earlier this week, and then um, and this is crazy because, like, that's really interesting. And uh, so... That kind of makes you think, well, okay, I'll say this first. So during the week this week, I don't know when it was, one night, um, Heather had been telling me she was having some back pain in the nights. And one night in the middle of the night, I hear like something hit the wall and a groan. And I was like, oh, are you okay? You know, and I kind of checking on her and uh, saying, are you doing okay? And there's no response coming. I'm like, oh, man. She must really be in pain, you know? And uh, so I started kind of praying for her, and, and then I kind of laid down, and I was like, it's weird that she didn't respond. She always answers when I ask how she's doing. I was like, are you doing okay? And I'm just looking at her, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. It's Josiah. <laughs> <laughs> I had looked at his face, and I still thought this was my wife, because who else would be lying in bed next to me except my wife? <laughs> my brain filled in and said, that's your wife. And then after a while, I'm like, oh, it's not. That's my son. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, my brain filled in. I'm, 
okay, now I have a real application of how what was before me was my son, but yet I saw my wife. And so, and then that's, that starts to make sense about how Jacob was confused when Leah was put into his room at night and veiled and it was dark and he just didn't know. I thought it was going to be Rachel. I expected it to be Rachel. I saw Rachel. Because that's what my brain said. And then in the morning, I was like, whoa, not Rachel. <laughs> so, uh, but, but so now then that kind of comes into this whole thing too about, well, if you presented a Greek Jesus versus a Hebrew Messiah, how could you reconcile the two? How could you actually realize that, no, actually, that is the Messiah? So it takes something beyond just our intellect and what our brains can do to bring that revelation and that knowledge. And so now we, you know, this is part of the importance of what we do within our study in presenting Yeshua in his Jewish context is to want one, to know our God, to know our Savior and to walk faithfully before him. Yes, but also so that we can give proper testimony to who Yeshua is so that he can be recognized for the Messiah that he is, right? And then that ultimately leads to this great revelation that we will uh, talk about next week as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, um, he and Judah working together to bring that about. But so that was a long way of saying the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. <laughs> and they had good reason. Okay, so let's, let's go read that since we got ahead of ourselves. In Genesis 42, starting in verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. And I'm just going to pause there. This, this is a key storyline in the second half of Genesis, the aspect of Jacob losing Rachel, right? And, and how, I think a couple weeks ago we talked about when he saw Rachel, he wept, right? And he was weeping. Those were tears that, that mirrored Esau's weeping. And then they were tears of Jacob realizing that he was not going to be able to have Rachel completely, that he would lose her. And so within the aspect of losing Rachel, there's losing her and her children. Now she has already passed, right? And now Jacob has lost Joseph seemingly, right? He's been torn to bits, and uh, at least in his, in his mind. And now the only thing he has left of Rachel is Benjamin. And so that's a major piece. That's the only child that he has of his beloved wife, right? His most loved wife. That's the only piece of her that he has left. And so... Well, he's going to do everything he can to hold on to her. Just as he favored Joseph, he's favoring Benjamin now, and he's sending the ten to go and get the provisions to protect him. So thus the sons of Israel came to buy, among the other, to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to, 
to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this shall you be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Okay, so when we look at this story, uh, it seems a little random, right? Like that they, they come to him and they, they're coming to buy food and he says, you're spies. They said, no, we're not. He says, yes, you are. No, we're not. Yes, you are. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's brothers. <laughs> i tell you what. But, um, but he's calling them spies. And so the, the, one of the questions becomes, well, why, why is he calling them spies? And coming to see the land's nakedness and, and speaking of this. Now, what the scripture said is that Joseph recalled the dreams that he had dreamt about them. He remembered what he had dreamt about them. And he's also remembering what they had done to him, of course, because he's not really going to forget that. And why does he call them spies? It's, it's because his brothers had seen him as a spy before. When they, when they took his cloak, threw him in the pit, they saw him as a spy. And if we, if we go back, and if we were to take a look, it's not going to be on your screen, but Genesis 37, um, in verse 2, the scripture says, These are the chronicles of Jacob. Joseph, at the age of 17 years, was a shepherd with his brothers by the flock, but he was a youth with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph would bring evil reports about them to his father. So how do you get evil reports about people? Well, you have to go find out what it is they're doing. And then you go and tell someone who's in authority of what they're doing. So he's spying out what his brothers are doing and then bringing reports. So his brothers saw him as a spy, one who was not loyal to them, one who was not loyal to the family, right? Them being the brothers. And so now they were going to do, do away with him. Um, and then if you look at the story, it's interesting with the parallel of what's happening here, right? So Jacob sent Joseph on a mission to his brothers. And now in this story, Jacob sent the brothers on a mission to Egypt unknowingly to his brother. Right. So again, they're sent on this mission. And now when jo but when Joseph's being sent the first time to find his brothers, if you recall, he was unable to find them and he was wandering in the field and he came across a man. And the man told him 
how to find them. So a man discovered him, and behold, he was blundering in the field. This is Genesis 37, 15. The man asked him, saying, What do you seek? And he said, My brothers do I seek. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing. And the man said, They have journeyed on from here, for I heard them saying, Let us go to Dothan. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, when I read here, it says, The man said, They have journeyed on from here. In the, like in the Hebrew, it doesn't say they've journeyed from here. It says that they have arisen from that. Or they have arisen from this. They have left this. And so when the sages looked at the scripture here, they said, well, why is it they said they have left this as opposed they have left here? Or they have left from there? Why this? And what they, what they recognized is that the man was responding to Joseph's first statement of, my brothers do I seek. And the man said, they have left this. They have left brotherhood. And now they have gone to Dothan, which the root of Dothan is law. And so they're seeking grounds to put you to death. Okay, this is, this is the interpretation of the sages. So my brothers do I seek. No, they have left being your brothers. And now they are against you. And so, because, because they see you as a spy. So now, you flip things around and the brothers are coming to Joseph and he says, you are spies. And they say, no, 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 we are all brothers, right? We're brothers of one man. We're 12 brothers of one man. And they say that um, the 10 are there and then there is a younger brother and there's one that is no more. Now, why does Joseph object to them saying we are brothers, sons of one man? Right now, they have there's four mothers over the twelve, and but there is one father over the twelve. However, Joseph knows how they treat the brothers, like how they treat the sons of Rachel, and it's different than how they treat the sons of Leah, Zilpha, and Bilhah. And so if you're 12, you're saying you're 12 brothers, but you weren't a brother to one, then are you really brothers all of one father? Or is Benjamin also the brother that you will treat in the same way you treated me? Right? So, so you're saying, no, you're spies. You're not brothers. You're spies. You're not trustworthy. You're not loyal. You're not compassionate. Okay? Because you weren't compassionate to me when I was in the pit crying out for you to, to have mercy on me, right? And so that's the argument that's going on here. Now, the brothers don't know that that's the argument. They just think they're being falsely accused. But Joseph's saying, are you really brothers? No, you're not really brothers. I know what you do to, to brothers, okay? And so he says, nope, it's just as I've declared to you. You are spies, and this is how you're going to be tested. You're going to go get your other brother, and you're going to bring him here. Okay, so he's telling him, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested. I'm going to see if you really are brothers or if you're not brothers. And <clears throat> so, okay, I'm going to share this uh, as well. There was another brother. Okay, so we're talking about two lines, right? We're talking about Messiah, son of Joseph. We're talking about the Messiah, son of David. You've got the story of Joseph in here and the story of Judah. You know, there was another brother 
um, who was not esteemed by a number of his brothers. And this is King David. So King David had seven older brothers and, and David was viewed as the outcast, the youngest of the, of the children. And his, well, his, uh, it was questionable as to whether or not he was a legitimate child of Jesse or not. So if we were to go and we were to look at the uh, traditional stories of him, well, there's, there's multiple reasons why his uh, kingship could be in question. One, it's the aspect of Ruth the Moabite, Moabitess being his great-grandmother. And can one of the Moabites enter into the congregation of Israel? And ultimately, yes, it's only the men of Moab who were prevented from entering into, into the family. But so anyway, so that's one way. But the other way is that there were questions, at least in tradition, of what was, uh, was he really a legitimate child of Jesse or was he not? And so when, when Samuel comes to anoint the future king in the house of Jesse, he, asks, he comes and he asks Jesse to bring all of his sons to this meal. And in 1 Samuel 6, wait, it's, uh, yeah. Um, it's 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel comes to Jesse and says, bring all your children here. And when he brings in the seven children, he leaves David out in the field. It's interesting that he would leave one of the children out in the field when Samuel brings them all. And of course, he comes in, Eliab, the oldest, comes in, and he looks like a king. But God tells Samuel, no, that's not the one, because I look at the heart, whereas man looks at the outward appearance. You know, Saul was, was tall. Uh, scripture says, that I believe he was head and shoulders above everyone. He was one who would look kingly, but he didn't have the heart. And so, so God didn't, but God did not choose Eliab. And then uh, they went through all seven. And in verse, uh, verse 10 of 1 Samuel 16, Thus Jesse made, made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Now, the, the word here is hakatan, right? Which can be, there remains the youngest one but it's also the remains the lesser or the little. And he's out in the field, right? And so there's, even within that, there's an aspect of why did Jesse not bring him in as one of the sons? And why did he call him the lesser or the little out there? And then we, there's other passages too, like if we were read, to read in Psalm 69, um, this, a Psalm of David, and uh, he talks about how he's, he's rejected and dishonored, estranged from his brothers and an alien to his mother's son. Right? So here's the picture of David in that time. And so he, they bring him in and he is anointed. He's anointed even though he was seen as something other. And there's even a question really... Uh, as to whether or not the brothers knew that he was being anointed as king or whether he was just being brought into the school of the prophets of Samuel. Because when you see in the next chapter of 1 Samuel 
17 when he goes out to the, uh, to the field when his, his father sends him to check on the welfare of his brothers. Interesting, right? Again, you have another parallel to Joseph. His father sends him to check on the welfare of his brothers and he goes out to check on them and he starts asking around of, hey, what's going what's gonna to go on for the one who kills this Goliath? And Eliab lashes out at him and he becomes angry with, with, uh, with David, which again reveals that where was his heart and why would he not be chosen, whereas David would be chosen. But, but anyway, and it's later on when he became crowned as king, according to the traditional story of how this worked out, when he was crowned as king, the brothers said, here, I'm going to actually go to this. The traditional story says that once he was crowned king, his brothers recognized that he was legitimate and not illegitimate in his father's household. So they, they thought him to be illegitimate, but, they, but his mom stood up once he was crowned king and said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, to which the brothers responded, this is the Lord's doing, and we didn't understand it, right? And fascinating, right, when you talk about, like, these are the traditional stories of how did the life of David play out. And so in both cases of Joseph and David, they were viewed, they were rejected by their brothers, but yet sent to check on the welfare of their brothers. And then ultimately, you know, Joseph suffered was thrown in the pit, but was raised up and ruled and reigned until the reunion happened. And then David rejected, thought illegitimate, until the time that he was anointed king. Not, not just anointed king, but crowned as king. And his brothers said, this is the doing of the Lord, and we didn't understand it. The chief cornerstone, has, or the, corner, the cornerstone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone, yes. Well, that was, yes, that was traditional, that the oldest would become king. But we're, in this case, what was happening is that Saul was being rejected and a, new, a king from a different line was being established. Right? So and I'm just wondering if that's part of the reason why... Why Samuel thought Eliab might be because he was the oldest, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. yeah, it's quite possible that, hey, look, this is the oldest... He has the look and stature of a king, but then God says, no, it's by my choice, not by what you're expecting here. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, and again, so then Yeshua being the chosen, the chosen son. Um, but yeah, so in both cases, you have incredible parallels, both the line of David and the line of Joseph. And then you have Yeshua who fits in both parts. The one who is questioned, is he really a legitimate Jew? It, can he possibly be the Messiah if he's dressed in Greek garments or presented in Greek garments? And the answer is yes. The thing is we need revelation and we need the reconciliation amongst brothers, right? Um, okay, so, so we have that. And then now the testing. The testing comes about where... He says, you have to go and you bring Benjamin. So he puts all the brothers into the pit or into prison for a three-day period. 
And then in Genesis 42, 18, the scripture says, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and you will live. Isn't that great? So he puts them in the pit for three days. On the third day, he brings them out and says, do this and live. It's like Hosea 6, 2, you know, uh, after two days, he will uh, revive us. On the oh, wait, on, uh, well, Hosea 6, 2 <laughs> is a reference <laughs> that you can look up. But it says, uh, it talks about the reviving being on the third day, right? Um, so the resurrection on the third day, he's bringing them up on the third day and saying, giving them the answer to how they will live. I fear God, if you're honest, let one of your brothers remain as a prisoner in the guardhouse where you've been while you go and bring grain for the hunger in your homes. And your youngest brother, bring to me so that your words can be verified and you won't die. And so they did. All right, so, so first off, he had told them that he was going to put them all in prison. Only one could go get Benjamin. And now he's seeing that he's not breaking the unity of these brothers. And so he says, okay, I'm going to send the rest of you back, and I'm just going to keep one. Right? So he's changing it up to where it will be more doable. And then he sends them to go and get their brother. All right. So let's go. What do we have next? Okay, so they go back. They go back to Jacob and they tell him what has happened and how Simeon has been placed in prison. And now Jacob is bereaved of yet another son, right? So, and they're asking for Jacob to give Benjamin into their hands that they could take Benjamin back to Egypt. And in Jacob's mind, you know, that would be a hard sell. Because here, I sent Joseph to you, and he didn't come back. I sent you out to go get food, and you didn't bring back Simeon. And now I'm to trust you to go and take Benjamin and actually bring him back? Nope, let's, let's not do that. So that he did not send them back right away until they ran out of food and came to a situation where they absolutely needed to go back. And this is where Reuben said, look, if I don't bring Benjamin, send Benjamin with us, if I don't bring him back, you can slay my two children. And Jacob's like, I don't want your children to be slain. I know what it's like to lose children. And so death is not what I'm seeking. I want the preservation of life, right? And so I want Benjamin brought back. I'm not sending him with you, right? And this is where Judah steps up and begins interceding to be the one who can go and really bring salvation to that family. Like, so think about this. We, we often think about how Joseph was the one who God sent before them to give provision and to bring a salvation to the brothers. But also without Judah standing here courageously and offering himself in place of in, in Benjamin's place, that he actually works to bring about a salvation for the brothers as well. Right? Because if he didn't do this, they wouldn't be going down into Egypt to get more provisions. And what would they do in the remaining five years of the famine? Right? 
So in both cases, the bro each brother is doing their part within it to bring about what the family needs. So Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So Judah lays it on the line, says, I'm standing for him and I will bear all of the burden and all of the iniquity if I don't bring him back. And so then we continue on with the story when Joseph, okay, so they, they head back and Joseph hears that they brought Benjamin back and his brothers have arrived, so he sets up a meal in his house. When Joseph came home, they, they brought him the offering in their hand into the house and they bowed down to the ground to him. Then he asked if they were well and said, Is he well, your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is well, they said. He's still alive. Then they knelt and bowed down. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother whom you mentioned to me? And then he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out because his compassion grew warm and tender toward his brother so that he wanted to cry. So he went into an inner room and wept there. Now, interestingly, just a little sidebar, the scripture says that he lifted up his eyes and he saw Benjamin, his mother's son, and then he went and he wept. That's a parallel to Jacob seeing Rachel. He lifted up his eyes and saw Rachel and he wept. So, and when he sees Benjamin, who's he seeing? His mother's son. We know that Benjamin is his mother's son. So why did the scripture say Benjamin, his mother's son? Because he's, he's lifted his eyes and saw Rachel and his brother. And then he wept. So we're seeing a, a repeat of the story here, but now it's this reunion that's taking place. So he went into the inner room and wept there, and then he washed his face, came out and controlled himself. Serve the food, he said. So they served him by himself. Then, then, by, then by themselves, or them by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with him by themselves. For Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews because it was an abomination to Egyptians. They were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. The men looked at each other in astonishment. Then portions were brought to them from before him, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of their portions. Yet they drank and made merry with him. Okay, so why were they astonished? Because he seated them from oldest to youngest. When all except Benjamin are within seven years of each other in age, and they're all in their late 30s, early 40s at this point. So how did he know what their birth order was? And this is where, uh, according to tradition, he used his silver goblet. And with using the goblet, which he wasn't really using the goblet for it, but he made it appear that he was using the goblet to discern who was the older for the seating, which sets the stage for what happens when he takes the silver goblet and puts it in Benjamin's sack. And he brings them back and says, didn't you know that I used divination? Right? And actually, this is a parallel of the Laban story. But, man, there's so much that would be fun to go through. We'll have to do, you'll have to come back next year. Maybe we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but anyway, so, so what happens is, so he sets them, he comes and he gives Benjamin a portion that is five times larger than their portions. 
Now, interestingly, he gave all the brothers the same portion that he gave himself, right? Which, think about this, that is a kingly portion, right? Now, the question is, you got your kingly portion. Are you going to be jealous of the portion that someone got that was more than you, especially the son of the favored mom? You know, can you handle that? What's going to be in your heart and what will, what will, what will you reveal? So, I mean, Joseph's putting a big test here. Now, it may not be all that big of a deal. It might be a little bit of a deal where they're like, how come he's even favored here? I mean, it's not just Jacob. It's, it's the, you know, the viceroy of Egypt. Even he prefers Benjamin to us, right? So now he's setting the scene and setting it up for what's about to take place when he sends them on and he hides. I'm going to go quickly through this part. Um, for the sake of time, I've talked way too long so far. But um, so he, after they've done this, he sends them off and he hides. He has the, the silver goblet hidden in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends his servant to go overtake them on the road. And his servant overtakes them and says, how can you return good with evil? How could you steal from, from Joseph? Or not from Joseph, but from the king. And they, they say, well, surely we didn't do it. And whoever you, find, whoever you find this cup with will die. Okay. Again, this is a parallel of what was happening with Laban. Rachel took the teraphim. And Laban catches up to Jacob and says, you've stolen from me. Why, why did you steal? And he says, well, whoever has it will die. Well, now the brothers have just done the same thing unknowingly, just like Jacob didn't know that Rachel had taken the teraphim. The brothers don't know that Benjamin, quote, took the silver goblet, even though he didn't take it. And so they say, well, whoever has it will die, because they're like, surely no one in our company would think to steal from you. And so they find it in Benjamin's sack. And, they say, and he says, the one with whom it is found shall be my slave, but the rest of you shall be exonerated. And then they found it with Benjamin and they rent their garments. Their brothers rent their garments and each of them reloaded their donkey and they returned to the city. And this even with, okay, so this was actually a test they were already passing because what they were, what they were told was the one who did it will be a slave. The rest of you can go free. Now, we found Benjamin has it. This is the brother's chance to say, Benjamin, bad on you. I'll see you later, most favored son. <laughs> we are going to go back to dad. But they don't do that. All the brothers loaded up their donkeys and returned to the city. And when they came in, Judah arrived with his brothers. And Joseph was still there in his house. And they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed you've done? Do you not realize that a man like me practices divination? So Judah said, what can we say, my Lord? How can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has uncovered the sin of your servants. And here we are. We're ready to be slaves to my Lord, both we and the one in whose hand the goblet was found. But he replied, it would be sacrilegious for me to do this. The man in whose possession the goblet was found, only he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. And so... Now Judah is once again faced with a big test, right? Because he's got the past to go free. So from the king of Egypt's view, he's free to go. But from the word that he's given to his father, he's not free to go. 
And so now he has to take a stand, and we'll, we'll be reading about that next week. But within this, a key thing happened to help Joseph see something about his brothers that I skipped over uh, unintentionally, actually. Um, it's once he, had, once he had taken them out of the prison, he overheard them speaking to one another and saying, um, saying that all this was coming upon them because they didn't show compassion to their brother when they heard him crying out. So he was seeing, the brothers recognized that that was the, big, the biggest sin of what they had done with Joseph was not showing compassion to him. And so he overheard them and, and was seeing that. So when, when they returned with, Joseph, or with Benjamin, he had to be encouraged that perhaps they are going to act as brothers. And if they are going, but, I, but he still had to test them further and had to bring them to this point to say, are you brothers who are loyal to each other all the way through? Or are you, are you really only brothers of the three other mothers, not of Rachel, right? Will you be loyal all the way through regardless of the circumstances? And so we see, we'll see next week, that Judah, through his bravery and through his commitment, does stand and prove the, the brotherhood, and which actually leads to the reconciliation that happens between the two. Um, I've gone gone a little bit long, but I, I want to just say, kind of in wrapping this up, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Yeshua is asked, or Yeshua is asked, "Who is my neighbor?" And Yeshua tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And says, well, who was the neighbor? You know, he's the one who helped him. The one who helped the one who was beaten and left for nearly dead. That was the neighbor. And what was it that he did, that the Good Samaritan did? Well, the Good Samaritan showed compassion on one who was not even really his brother. If that makes sense, right? Um, But he treated him as though he was, even though... He could have passed by. So he showed compassion and offered the help that he could to demonstrate who is my brother. It's one that it's one that you treat with compassion and with loyalty and go out of your way to take care of. And so even this, Joseph had set up his brothers to a point where they had to go out of their way to maintain brotherly fellowship with Benjamin, to overcome their past hurts, to overcome jealousy to overcome the father loving one more than us, that our mother isn't as loved as Rachel was, and say, I can still love and be loyal and show compassion to my brother, even offering ourselves in his stead. That, well, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, right? And in this case, they were laying themselves down for their brother. And so... I don't know if maybe that ties in even with the aspect of the dream I shared earlier where we get to share love and kindness to others even when they are different, even when they may not be our brother or our sister. Right? But we're called to love, to love well, to go above and beyond, to go the extra mile and actually be our brother's keeper. Right? 
Amen. I'm going to say a, a short prayer, and then Michael's going to come up and give an impromptu teaching on, it's kind of impromptu, teaching on the month of Tibet. Um, okay, so, Lord, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you have orchestrated these events to give us revelation of who the Messiah is, to give us revelation of the love that he has shown to all mankind and to show us what love between brothers is and how we can walk together in unity and compassion and loyalty towards one another. Lord, I ask that you change our hearts, refresh us, renew us. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.